This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Joining me today is Senior Staff Attorney for Immigrant Legal Resource Center, Rose Khan. Rose oversees the Resource Center's Pro Bono Immigrant Post-Conviction Relief Project, co-authors many manuals at the cusp of criminal and immigration law, and was instrumental in drafting California Penal Code 1473.7, a landmark piece of legislation that created a legal framework to vacate unconstitutional convicts. So thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So let's start from the beginning, the background. What first inspired your focus on the intersection of criminal and immigration law, and how did that lead you to your work at Legal Immigration Resource Center? Well, we got to get in the way back time machine and go to, uh, I graduated college um, on the East Coast in 2001, and like many of my peers, I moved to New York, excited to make it in the big city. and I moved there in August of 2001. Um, a month later, I watched as the Twin Towers fell uh, and was felt the same shock and terror, fear that the rest of the world felt watching that. But then that feeling was magnified by seeing how quickly the immigration system was used to weaponize itself against immigrants of color, in particular immigrants who were perceived to have come from Muslim countries. I watched as thousands and thousands of immigrants were asked to come and line up in front of the then INS building, asked to specially register. As someone of Jewish ancestry, looking at people being asked to get the equivalent of a gold star on their arm for no reason other than their religious uh, nationality or their religious or their perception of their uh, religious background. To me, it was shocking. And I knew I had to do something about it. I um, began immediately volunteering, trying to help people naturalize, become US citizens. I got a job at a union uh, that represents Storman and Janitors, shout out Local 32BJ. Um, The majority of our membership were were non-citizens. And we actually did something pretty radical at the time where we provided free immigration services to all of the union members and their beneficiaries. So we helped people uh, apply for citizenship. We helped people petition for relatives etc. And we did all of that for free. But in engaging in that individual representation, and again, this is in the early 2000s, I was able again to see this shocking intersection of criminal and immigration law, where my longtime lawful permanent residents were barred from US citizenship because of a conviction as simple as turnstile jumping, failing to pay their Metro card fare or for engaging in the same type of recreational activities that my white US citizen friends were engaged in over the weekend without any repercussions. But meanwhile, these individuals were barred from getting their green cards, were barred from US citizenship, were in fact actually placed in deportation proceedings. And it was so, you know, to borrow the US Supreme Court's phrase here, you know, it was an Alice in Wonderland through the looking glass type of world where what's down is up and what's up is down. And it so shocked the conscious um, that I knew I needed to do something about it. 
I went to law school at NYU School of Law where I had the good fortune of working under Nancy Morowitz. Um, and Nancy and her husband, Manny Vargas, were really at the forefront of leading some of the academic work at the intersection of crimes and immigrant justice. Um, but they really took that academic work out of academia and into the streets. So we were trained how to be movement lawyers. We helped uh, amicus briefing in front of federal courts, including in front of the US Supreme Court. And I caught the bug. This little niche area was my passion. Um, and I knew this is what I wanted to spend my career in. And you know, this is before we even had fancy terms like crimmigration or uh, you know, before it was as common to talk about. So in my era coming into this, it really felt like no one was paying attention to this small little corner. And as a result, um, a lot of really unjust things were happening. And those of us who had kind of peered behind the curtain had an obligation to do something. And I was fortunate to develop the skills, the training and the mentorship that allowed me to do something. That's amazing. And you're right, you're working in a very particular niche and it's, it's hard to get the attention because when you think about criminal justice and criminal law and then also immigration, those are two areas that already holds a bit of stigma to it. Because when people think about uh, criminal law, they think, oh, criminals, they must have done something wrong. Or they think about immigrants, like they shouldn't be here, right? So it's already working at a deficit. But to acknowledge and know that, hey, these are human beings too. We have to make sure that their human rights are upheld. I'm sure that you have to wrestle with <laughs> when you engage. I couldn't. In I couldn't ways. agree with you more. Um, and to be honest, uh, I think we have ways that our movements themselves have played into that divisiveness, right? Where you have threads of the immigrant rights movement who, for years, were holding up signs saying we're not criminals, right? Or you have the criminal justice reform movement that has been, by and large, framed as a black issue without recognizing the fact that yes, Black people can also be immigrants, right? So I think um, we are existing in that Venn diagram of overlap. And I have been educated and schooled by the Black Lives Matter movement that really teaches us we need to ground our organizing and our advocacy and those who have been most marginalized, most ignored. And by really concentrating our advocacy, our narrative work, our legislation and litigation around those people, you actually have that rising tide that could lift all boats. So instead of taking the you know, low hanging fruit, let's serve those who are, you know, most sympathetic in the eyes of uh, the media. Let's instead see if we can flip the script and really show the humanity that connects all of us. Um, and so that's been the animating feature of most of my work. And uh, I've been, I feel very fortunate to have the career that I've had. Yes, we thank you for that. <laughs> One of the ways that you're rising the tide is through this program that you're running and overseeing is the Post-Conviction Relief Project. Could you tell us the story yeah. behind that? Sure. 
Well, um, after graduating uh, from law school and clerking for a federal circuit court judge, I uh, joined the law office of Norton Tooby. And Norton kind of created this legal strategy, which is uh, recognizing that for many immigrants, once they have that criminal conviction on their record, the immigration consequences become immutable, right? That conviction for that controlled substance offense will bar them, acts as a permanent bar for uh, getting immigration relief or acts as a ground of mandatory deportation and mandatory detention. And so for many non-citizens, the the only avenue for relief is really re-entering that criminal court proceeding and figuring out if there's some way you can undo that conviction, kind of get at the root issue there and uh, then get rid of all of those additional consequences. And so I was really fortunate to have worked with Norton where I helped litigate thousands of cases and helped author manuals about post-conviction relief, uh, helped lead trainings across the country for practitioners about how to engage in this novel legal strategy. And working with Norton was inspiring. I got to see what a crucial difference uh, post-conviction relief can make for immigrants. But I also saw the massive gap in the legal services provided. Um, people who had the resources to pay for private attorneys like Norton were able to access this critical lifeline. But if someone didn't have the resources, there was really no pro bono, no legal service uh, structure that they could turn to to provide them that critical form of representation. So um, I left uh, Norn's office with a bag full of tricks and, <laughs> and with the goal there of democratizing go. access to post-conviction relief. Uh, and I had three main strategies to do that. First, I wanted to engage in legislation to really expand the vehicles that we could use to attack old convictions. Second, I wanted to train up the legal services field, whether those are reentry service providers, clean slate people, um, or the immigrant legal service field themselves. I wanted to figure out how to train them and uh, how to use these tools. Um, and then third, I knew we needed a stopgap measure because it would take a while till we got those laws passed or till we got the funding um, and people trained up and how to do this for free. And so we had to turn on the resources that we had, which is the pro bono community. So I started the country's first pro bono post-conviction relief project where we took referrals from nonprofits uh, throughout the country. And I trained up willing volunteers from the law firm community and gave them sample briefs, gave them that type of elbow to elbow mentorship that's critical for success. And we we're able to launch this project. And I'm pleased to say that we've been hugely successful. Um, we win uh, well over 98% of our cases. Um, wow. But I think the largest sign of our success is that we've actually been able to slowly shrink the pro bono project because we are developing that skill set within the institutional players, within the public defenders, within the nonprofit legal services 
services community. We've been able to get millions of dollars worth of funding to them through both state and private grants. And we've been able to provide them with the capacity building necessary to allow them to engage in high quality representation. Um, and, you know, we've been super successful in the field of policy advocacy as well. We've passed over 10 new post-conviction vehicles in the California state legislature alone in the last seven years. And we're hard at work defending those wins um, against various attacks. But it's been, you know, there's much further to go. We are nowhere near where we need to be. Uh, but we're getting much closer to this vision that no human should be deported on the basis of an unlawful illegal conviction and that every person regardless of the amount of money in their pocket should be able to have access to high quality competent attorneys who can represent them in this critical form of relief. Wow, uh, a 98% success rate. I mean, that's great. That's good on any test <laughs> that you take. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll definitely take it. Now, what is a, a common unlawful conviction that you come across? And maybe if you can give a success story. Sure. So one of the, you know, I can take someone that we worked with in the pro bono post-conviction project, um, a client named Maria. She's a longtime lawful permanent resident. She came to the United States with her husband in the 1980s. They got their green cards here. They raised their three U.S. citizen daughters here. Um, Maria's husband passed away and Maria took a job filleting fish uh, outdoors at a restaurant. She worked six and a half days a week. And then she developed arthritis um, and she turned to the same remedy her mother, her grandmother, her great grandmother had used where she grew a few marijuana plants in her backyard. She would harvest the marijuana and then soak it in rubbing alcohol and then use that tincture on her arthritic joints. Um, this is before Prop 64 had passed in California, which legalized certain marijuana usage and certainly made far more prevalent access to the types of tinctures and ointments that Maria was uh, kind of home brewing in her kitchen. But uh, Maria's home got raided one day and they found the marijuana plants, they found a stack of cash and the police put two and two together in their mind. They saw a brown person and they saw cash and they decided that Maria, a grandmother at this point with no criminal record was a drug trafficker. And they charged Maria among a litany of other offenses with cultivation of marijuana. Maria was represented by her public defender who looked at her record, saw there was nothing there and said, look, I can get you off, no problem. We can get you four months house arrest. You can put this incident behind you. We can even get it pled as a misdemeanor and you'll be able to go on with your life. Maria did exactly what this white man in a suit told her to do and she pled guilty without realizing um, the long lasting impact that this conviction would have on her record. She even got an expungement a few years later. Well, fast forward six years and Maria travels outside of the country for the first time in decades. When she returns, she, instead of being greeted by the waiting arms of her daughter, she's actually sent to secondary questioning 
uh, on the basis of this controlled substance conviction. She's then sent to an immigrant detention facility in this rural California, where she is incarcerated for over eight months as she fights her case. Because even though this conviction is a misdemeanor, and side note, it's now, it would now even be for, uh, it wouldn't even be punishable or criminalized now. Even though this conviction is for a misdemeanor and it had been expunged, it is still treated under federal law as an aggravated felony, subjecting her to mandatory deportation, mandatory detention, mandatory denial of naturalization. Even the best immigration attorney in the country really wouldn't have an argument that would allow Maria to remain in the US. But fortunately, she came to the doors of our pro bono clinic. We we're able to pair her with a really dedicated volunteer attorney. We contacted her old defense attorney who freely acknowledged that he had not advised her about the immigration consequences. And we went back into criminal court where finally, after some back and forth, we we're able to vacate Maria's controlled substance conviction. We we're actually able to replead to another misdemeanor. So the prosecutor got uh, the conviction on its record that had the same sentence exposure and the same prior ability as the one we are vacating, but didn't cause any consequences, right? And so as a result, Maria was immediately released from the detention center. She's now a naturalized US citizen. When that Padilla right was violated, when defense counsel failed to advise their clients as they're legally obligated to do, um, then we have to allow people the opportunity to clean up that conviction because it is an unconstitutional and illegal conviction. And it should not form the basis of this life altering uh, deportation consequence. Right. I mean, if that wasn't successful, that would have totally derailed the rest of her life of what she can do, where she can go, and how she can travel, how she can provide for herself and her family in, in all aspects. Um, and just for something, a uh, substance that now in California is legalized, <laughs> that's something I know in the Black community that many are, are dealing with who are still imprisoned in a state where now the, the substance that they're imprisoned for, it's legal. It's like, okay, then why are we still in here? And I just thought about you You saying when the officers came in, they saw a brown person with money, and that was already suspicious. Like, right. <laughs> that that <laughs> already raises suspicion. Like, wait, I'm not supposed to have this. <laughs> this work exists at the apex of two deeply racist uh, systems. This policing, which is based on racism, and immigration, which also is based on racism, and combine the two together, and you see what you get, right? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> right. Yeah, next. Um, well, so from stories like that, how can we better serve the rights of immigrants with criminal convictions? I know that you work on local and national legislative policies. I was wondering about the strategies that you're currently implementing. Right. Well, um, there's a lot of ways to dig in here. I think the first thing is for those policy advocates out there, for people who um, are interested in moving um, new laws, 
let's chat. Um, we have a playbook here of things that have worked and frankly, things that haven't worked as well. For too long, what we've seen is immigrant advocates having their legislative wish list in their corners and the criminal justice reformers having their uh, policy wish list in their corners. But we really need to do a better job at coming to the table together and meeting the holistic needs of the impacted community, uh, regardless of their citizenship status. So some of the most exciting work that I think we're engaged at is a work that breaks us out of our silos, that doesn't you know, look at something as either criminal justice reform or you know, an immigrant rights reform, that, but that sees the racial justice through lines that connects all of our work and identify strategies that get at that, that get at real racial justice. And I think through doing that, we're developing a new vision for liberation. So, you know, I think this can look a number of different ways. When we're talking about defunding the police, when we're talking about changing the investment divestment models, um, we need to be thinking about the ways that police interact with not just the black community, but also the black immigrant community. And we need to be looking at ending things like 287G agreements or local collaboration with ICE. But again, let's not wage these campaigns separate from the campaigns to defund the police. Let's unite these calls together. Or you know, when we're talking about the movement towards decriminalization of certain offenses, it's very important that this is uh, that this looks forward, that this is forward looking, but we also must make it backward looking to undo the deeply racist uh, implementation of these laws in the past. And when we're looking at ways to undo the, that uh, racist implementation, we need to think about how that will be perceived by immigration courts. So sometimes we need to tweak the language a little bit, right? We need to call it a vacator based on legal invalidity. Or, um, and we've been successful in passing some retroactive decrim legislation that really undoes the conviction for all purposes, for citizens as well as non-citizens. So that conviction is no longer a barrier to housing, to employment, but also to re-entering the United States, right? Um, or when we're talking about prosecutor accountability and prosecutor reform, the movement for diversion, all of these have an angle that is critical to the well-being of citizens and non-citizens. So the key point is really just a best practices for all policy advocates, which is get all the impacted communities at the table together and dream together, uh, because it's only in working together that we can identify and and start building that future that will be better for all of us. Right. And many of these convictions are misdemeanors, are low threat crimes. And as we were saying before, it completely derails the trajectory of people's lives uh, who otherwise would be beneficial to society and bring value to the community. And I, I know what particularly stood out when I was researching was this penal code. I'm not sure if I ever talked to anybody who actually helped draft uh, code. So you might have to <laughs> slow step walk me through 1473, <laughs> um, but effectively it created a legal mechanism to vacate unconstitutional 
convictions. So I, I want you to take me from the origins, who did you work with, the, the drafting process, and what was the resulting outcome? Well, thank you for that question. And when people ask about penal code section 1473.7, I really feel like they're asking about, you know, my third child. Like I am, I put so much time into this um, and I am proud of it and I can you talk about be. it. I'll show you pictures. Um, yes. it is really... I'll hang it up on my wall. Right, exactly. Um so necessity is a mother of invention. Um, and I will say that, you know, I mentioned working with Norton Tooby out of law school. Well, one of the first big cases that we tried uh, was a case that went up to the California Supreme Court. And we were trying to vacate or erase this old unconstitutional conviction. Um, and we were using a kind of wacky uh, Latin phrase called quorum nobis. And we were saying, hey, courts should be able to hear this using, because under a quorum nobis. And the California Supreme Court scratched their head and they're like, well, you can't just come up with legal vehicles and use Latin words and think that we're going to um, have the right to review these cases. And they said specifically, if the legislature had wanted to create a vehicle or a law or a mechanism for us to revisit these old convictions. So we lost um, that case in the California Supreme Court and I don't like to lose. And so <laughs> I said, all right, you say the legislature would act if it wanted to, let's invite the legislature to act. Um, and so I got to drafting and we came up with this strategist theory, um, because at the time under California law, if you were currently in custody, meaning you were currently in jail or prison uh, or on probation or parole, you could raise the claim that your conviction was illegal, which is fair, right? But then once custody ended, there was no legal vehicle. So that meant that for people like Maria, who didn't even find out that there was legal error that underlying her conviction until many years after custody had passed, um, simply the halls of justice were closed to her. Um, but critically, and this goes to that intersectionality that I was just discussing, it's not just uh, non-citizens who were shut out of the halls of justice, U.S. citizens who are no longer in custody also couldn't raise claims of legal error. And this could impact people who were, for example, on the registry or, you know, facing long-term consequences uh, of old convictions, but didn't have any way to address it because their conviction was so old. Um, and so we got to the drawing board, we created 1473.7, and we started shopping it around. Um, Frankly, the number one question I was asked when I was advocating for this bill was, how come, uh, how come you haven't done this yet? What took so long? A kind of incredulity that we didn't actually have a legal vehicle already. Um, and that I already knew once, once those are the questions you're getting asked, you know that you'll be okay. Um, so the law went into effect January 1st of 2017. If you, um, use your own memory, you can remember some other pivotal events that happened in January of 2017, namely uh, the old president taking office um, and where he led his campaign under the 
um, under the explicit goal of targeting and deporting immigrants, especially those who have had contact with the criminal legal system. And so the law went into effect at the exact right time where immigrant communities were feeling um, the were feeling the targets on their back and were wanting to do whatever affirmative step they could to try to solidify their status to try to, try to protect their communities. And so we got to work um, and it has been a, an incredibly consequential piece of legislation. We've been able to improve and expand on it over the last three years with different series of amendments that even broaden its applicability. And we're supporting other jurisdictions across the country in passing similar laws because we know how critical it is. But again, passing the law is one thing, implementing is, an, is it a totally different story. And immediately after we passed it, we started advocating for the state government to fund people to engage in this type of work. And we have been part of a series of successful advocacy measures, most recently um, one which has resulted in $150 million a year uh, every year for three years to go to public defender offices to engage in post-conviction representation, including 1473.7. So again, you know, passing the law is good. Paying for people to have access to the law for free is critical. And um, then figuring out how you can take this kind of laboratory of California and export our best practices um, to other sites across the country, support other advocates and engaging in similar work. That's these are long term goals. Right. I mean, that's foundational, right, to have a legal vehicle that protects you from legal error. Because <laughs> <laughs> it shouldn't be rocket science. Um, I, yes, I mean, I think a lot of the work that I do is just about bringing common sense, common sense. to right. an area that, you know, has been called a labyrinth, I mentioned before, has been called an Alice in Wonderland. And I'm just looking at it from the kind of layperson's perspective and seeing this makes no sense. And let's figure out how we can have it even just make a little bit of sense. Right. Um, and whether that's, you know, there's a massive movement right now around automating access to expungement. So at the state level, we have states across the country of all political stripes, clearing people's records um, and doing it automatically. Well, did you know that those expungements, those state level expungements, don't do diddly squat for immigrants, that immigration law absolutely ignores those expungements. So one of the things that we're, so even though you're told, for example, in Utah, that your conviction will no longer exist for any purposes, well, immigration law actually will peel that back and say, no, you can be deported because of that expunged conviction. So that's kind of the new frontier of advocacy that I think is really critical of helping the federal government be a little more logical in the way that it recognizes and respects state actions um, and no longer kind of adding their own analysis, but instead giving the promised full faith and credit to the state action in a particular case. Yeah, I mean, I definitely appreciate the work that you do because you're focusing on a community, a demographic that's often overlooked and underappreciated. And I, 
you are able to give them a voice and in some cases, a second life, a second chance, right? To do this. I, so. I, I just have to push, I, I hate the term give voice to anyone. I am, I am not doing that. Okay. I hope at my best and providing a space where they who they already have their own voices where they can use them themselves (laughs) so creating a space where they can remain in the country with their community and use their own voices um and i'll use my privilege my access my education and the little relationships that i have to do what i can where you can now uh, for people who are listening and they're interested in the work that you do want to learn what's next that's coming out or any new initiatives, where should they go? And if you have any new projects coming up, uh, let us know about it. Sure. Uh, I mean, you can always catch us at ILRC.org in our areas of expertise. You can see crimes and post-conviction relief and see all of our latest resources. You can follow us on the socials or follow me personally. Um, I'm lackluster in that regard. but Because uh, <laughs> you're in the books. You're reading board. thousands of cases, as you said earlier. <laughs> I'm like, thousands? We're in the thousands now? Not even a couple of hundred is pretty impressive. But no, he's like, nah, we're, we're four digits now. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I am out there throwing, you know, every piece of spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. So whether that's, you know, launching new websites and new video projects or launching social media campaigns or trying to, you know, pass different legislation or build with different partners, um, I think you know, the critical thing is just do it all and you never know really what's going to take hold. So, um, you know, I think I, the, the movement around making sure that our reform efforts are as interconnected, as strategic, as thoughtful as possible is one that really excites me. Um, I believe the power will always be at the local level. And so I love nothing more than working with local organizers and doing the behind the scenes work of helping them figure out how their campaign goals and strategies can best bring together solutions that will, again, lift up all boats. Well, you are quite the shining light and your work is deeply appreciated. Thank you so much, Rose, for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.